Good morning, and um, my name is Denzel. Uh, it's good to be with you today. Uh, thank you for joining our online service, and I hope um, it's been a blessing to you, and we're glad you're a part of it. Um, it's truly a privilege to be able to gather with you, albeit virtually, this morning. Um, but yeah, we, we get together, and that is something special in itself. Um, again, it is virtual, and I can't see any of you, but you can all see me. Um, but there's something special about this. Um, and I point this out because church on a Sunday is not just any regular meeting, um, but our meeting in the name of Jesus is a sacred and significant moment. It is a real moment. We are persuaded that in spite of a global pandemic, that it is necessary not to give church a break and figure things out for ourselves, but we see it as necessary to find a way to meet. Why? Not merely because we need spiritual and social support, but because this is the time when we come together each week as a body to worship the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. This is weighty. There is something transcendent about this thing that we call church. Across London and Europe and the entire globe, even where it's not even legal, the body of Christ in their own time zones today, in their own countries and cities, towns, publicly and underground, all gather together to worship our risen Lord. This is not a casual moment. The world does whatever it wants on this day, but we, in line with the apostles and their witness of the resurrected Christ, dedicate this time to worship him. And the saying goes that familiarity uh, breeds contempt. So the frequency at which we meet might make some of us feel that there is little significance in this. But actually, our meeting to worship Jesus is so important and of such eternal significance that it ought to be frequent. It must be frequent because Jesus is the Lord, and we are his people, and we must worship him and do so together, not just individually. This meeting has been going on for thousands of years, and though longevity doesn't necessarily mean that a, a certain tradition is right, the foundation of our meeting is based upon the truth and the reality of the gospel. The gospel is the most powerful, historically and objectively verifiable, historical truth, yet it is so life-transforming that it can never be and should never be underestimated or overstated. It is the foundational, essential truth upon which the true global church is built. It is the foundational, essential truth that causes Ecclesia, us here, to exist. If there is no gospel, there is no ecclesia. We would have absolutely no reason to meet as a church without the gospel. It is the important truth, and in our text today, Paul reminds us that it is the basis of and fundamental foundation of what we believe about God and who he is and his relation to us, and it is the basis for our hope for the future. And so I'm going to read and I'm going to pray and we can dive into what the Lord might be saying to us today. That rhymed off the cuff. <laughs> um, and our text today is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Um, and if you'd be so kind, uh, if you're able to turn there with me, I'll give you a moment. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, or, uh, brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your gospel. Um, It is by the gospel that we are saved. Um, It's by the gospel that we know you. And Lord, as I look at this text, I pray that you would be with me. I pray that you would be with your people. Would Would you water the hearts of your people, Lord? And would you cause what I say to be encouraging, to build them up into the church that you have created them to be? Lord, may the Words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable before your sight. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've been um, thinking through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we've gone through so many different issues that Paul addresses throughout the letter. And a lot of these issues are what we might call ethical or behavioral. And... um, We arrive here at a a slight shift as we enter into this new section uh, that is um, fundamentally dealing with um, doctrinal issues, which means it pertains to what the Corinthians believe. And the presenting issue here is what they believe, not so much about Jesus' resurrection, but about their own resurrection. Now, we know that Corinth is a Greek city with a culture known for its immorality, uh, sexual sin, um, idolatry. But its culture um, is also known for its love of wisdom and philosophy. And commentators look at this slightly differently. But in this culture, the seemingly popular philosophy on the issue of life after death is that there are two fundamental elements to existence, which is the physical and the spiritual. And uh, humans are made of the physical and the spiritual. And the idea suggests that the spiritual is important. It lasts forever and is therefore of greater significance. Um, Whereas the physical is corrupted, and it is an unredeemable part of being a human being because it's subject to decay. And because the physical is so corrupt, there needs to be liberation from all things physical. So when you die, your spiritual side is freed from the corrupt physical nature, which sometimes is called a prison. And once liberated, you'll be able to live freely as a disembodied, floating spirit uh, without a corrupted body. And so the idea of a physical body resurrecting would be an uncommon and foolish idea to this kind of culture. Um, And we see an example of this in Acts 17, verses 32, when Paul mentions to the Greeks in, in Athens, which is not too far from Corinth, that Jesus was raised from the dead, they respond by mocking him because it is incompatible with their worldview. So the issue here may be a case where the church is actually holding on to the gospel, but then also being drawn into hold on to other truths and somehow mix the two, even though they conflict. Now what makes this problematic is that the, this kind of outside thinking is bleeding into the Corinthian, the Corinthian church, and it begins to threaten the fundamental tenets of the beliefs they hold, namely the belief of a bodily resurrection, which at the time was unique to the Christian faith um, and also to Jewish faith. And I believe this shows a danger that a church that is too heavily influenced by the culture around it um, is, is, is on dangerous grounds. The dodgy behavior of the Corinthians um, may be symptomatic of the fact that their beliefs are skewed by the outside culture there seems to be a correlative relationship between their belief and their behavior. So, you know, a possible example of this might be uh, if you're convinced, like they might have been in the the afterlife, uh, you're merely going to be a floating spirit. Um, Why should it matter how I treat people? You won't see me again. I'm going to be a duppy. (laughs) You won't recognize my spirit. We'll we'll fly by each other. There's no consequences. There may be something in this kind of thinking that is encouraging the chaotic behavior in the previous chapters, like how there is spiritual competition in the church and they're trampling on each other because of jealousy, 
or during communion, some of them are having feasts while their brothers and sisters are starving, watching them eat. Or when some of the Corinthians boast that one of their members has had their mother-in-law. I'm convinced that this kind of issue shows how deeply the outside culture can infiltrate the minds and behaviors of believers. We are not victims of this world, but there is a strong sense in which we are attacked ideologically on a daily and even hourly basis with so many different philosophies and ideologies. And this is especially true in our age. The world and popular culture intentionally push its agenda of perverted truth on the basis of free thought and tolerance. If you watch TV for an hour, there will be a number of philosophies fed to you through TV shows or adverts or the news. Social media, the education system, political systems, they all have ideologies available for us to pick and fuse together as we like. We do not want to be believers that are drawn to mix the world's wisdom and God's word. More often than not, they are incompatible and contrary to a biblical, Christ-centered worldview. Yet these worldly ideologies can be deceptive because they can have elements of truth that seem agreeable, but we ought to be careful and vigilant that the world's wisdom does not infiltrate our core belief. Increasingly, there is a danger for us as a church and individually to take on worldly ideologies and create new forms of Christianity with different and new Gospels. Feel free to disagree with me, but Christian culture increasingly adopts the philosophies of the outside culture. We live in a consumerist, postmodern culture where you're encouraged to mix one kind of truth with another kind of truth and have it your own way. So it is vital that we stick to what we are reminded here is of first importance. And so from today's text, I have two points. The first is that our hope is centered on the reality of the gospel. And point two, the gospel is God's transforming grace. So point one, our hope is centered on the reality of the gospel. Paul begins by saying, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance that which I also received. And we'll stop there for now. So in response to this problem to the culture influencing the church, Paul is set on reminding them of the gospel, or as one commentator puts it, he wants to recall to one's mind the things he already knows but have escaped him. And by way of observation, there are a few things we can point out in these opening verses. The first is that Paul is talking here to Christians, not to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians. He calls them brothers. They have received the gospel and stand in the gospel, meaning that they have been convinced of his truth and accepted and believed in this particular gospel that he preached to them. Yet he has to remind already believing Christians of the basis of their faith, even though they know it. Likewise, we need to be reminded. The gospel is not the entry-level exam that you take to get in and forget about once you feel you're more advanced. But it goes on to say that the gospel, or it is by the gospel, it is the gospel by which you're being saved. And the tense here is present continuous, which means it is still happening. The good news is not only the foundation of a believer's life in Christ, but it is the always necessary sustaining truth by which they are being saved throughout their Christian walk. It is the already and the not yet. So once we truly believe and trust in Christ, we are saved and secure in that very moment of salvation and have been justified by Christ already but we are continually being saved and being sanctified until the Lord completes his work in us, until we are in the full likeness of Christ in our resurrected bodies. They're not yet. And this is why Paul charges them to hold fast to the gospel. And um, we will revisit this part of the verse a bit later. Another observation is that the gospel was preached as of 
first importance. Paul alludes three times in these verses that the gospel was preached. Verse 1, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Verse 2, hold fast to the word I preached to you. Two, uh, verse 3, for I delivered to you, or in other words, instructed or brought to you. So evidently, the gospel is a preached truth. And I think it's important to mention this because it's become popular to say, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> now, there is good truth in that. Our lives should be great evidence of God's working if we are Christians. But the quote might miss the fact that speaking is integral to living. We spend most of our days communicating verbally with people. Even in spite of COVID, we still communicate verbally with people over Zoom, however it is that we meet. And unfortunately, people aren't merely going to turn to Christ because they see that you're a nice girl or you're a nice guy. Um, people must hear the gospel preached probably even more than they need to see your life. The gospel is good news that needs to be told. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Paul preached it to the Corinthians as of first importance. And it's not first in terms of chronological priority. It is first in prominence, meaning it surpasses all other truth. It is first in rank. It is essential, central. It is the chief of all truth. There is no philosophy or truth more important, more powerful than the gospel. And so what is the gospel? Paul continues from verses 3b to 4 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. He raised from the dead. That is the good news. And you may ask, why is this good news relevant to me? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Firstly, Christ died for our sins. People typically think that everyone sins a little bit, but we're good people by nature. But actually, because of the sin of Adam, every single human being has inherited sin nature, not a good nature, sin nature. No matter who we are, be it prime ministers, presidents, priests, the pope, Doctors, humanitarians, charity workers, educational workers, pastors, whoever you are, in light of God's law and his standard of morality, our lifestyles, thoughts, words, and actions offend God. Even our consciences are a witness against us that we break God's law. The word conscience means, or the root of it means with knowledge, meaning that we are aware of our sin and the wrong we do, and therefore, we will be held accountable. Our sin causes us to disregard the God we know to exist. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, not some, all. And we are not only alienated from God because of sin, but we are unable to reflect and love his glory as we were created to. This is the human condition. And no one is exempt. Many other belief systems teach that we can earn God's love and favor by being good people and doing good things and being clean-hearted. But inherently, we cannot be good. And before God, we will not be able to trade off our sins for the good deeds that we've done. We are told nowadays that we should embrace our mistakes and our oopsie-daisies and sins and not be shamed for them, and no one can judge you. But this kind of thinking encourages us to embrace that which is a sin, that which is a crime before a holy, just, and righteous God. And God has determined that the just penalty for sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Our sin cannot be swept under the rug. And people refute this and say, that's unfair. How could God do this? But just as we, were, we should not expect a good and just judge to acquit a guilty criminal, 
we cannot expect that God who has true and perfect justice ingrained in his very nature to acquit us who are guilty. And this leaves all of us in a dire and critical condition. But God, abundant and profound in his love and mercy toward us, did not leave us without hope. God in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, the only one who was able to uh, earn the favor of God, took our sins upon himself and suffered death in our place. Christ willingly, intentionally, and lovingly died for our sins. He died in our place, in or on our behalf. His blood was shed in order that ours would not be shed. The execution we were going to receive, it was inevitable. There is a final day of reckoning. The execution we were going to receive, Christ took upon himself and bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so his death is of massive importance to each of us because it is the saving event for sinners, which is everyone, who are deserving of God's justice. This historical event directly applies to your need for salvation. Not to your neighbor's need, to your need for salvation. Romans 5 verses 6 to 9 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God treated Christ as if he were a sinner, as if he had sinned every sin every believer would ever sin, even though he wasn't a sinner, in order that he might treat believers, even though we are sinful, as though we have lived the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Amen. And he was buried. Jesus was undeniably dead. He undeniably died. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a swap he wasn't faint or unconscious. He was certified as dead. The horrific sufferings of the cross, the scourging and torture he received, nails through his wrists and his feet, the agony of asphyxiation by method of crucifixion and the, truth, and, and the spear piercing through his right lung into his heart all culminate into a murderous event that truly killed him. And he was buried, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, granted by Pilate. And to guarantee no one would steal his body, Roman guards were set at his burial site. But he was raised on the third day. Jesus Christ, who was seen as crucified, certified as dead, who was wrapped in grave clothes, who was buried, placed in a tomb, resurrected on the third day, the crucified Jesus was seen alive. Now there's a sense in which we, we hear this fairly often so we can become desensitized to it. But a man who was completely dead and witnessed as dead, resurrected, left his grave clothes and left the tomb. His grave is empty and he is risen and risen indeed. And the significance of the resurrection assures us of three things. The first is that if his death is the payment for sin, his resurrection is the confirmation, the receipt that the father accepted his sacrifice as a full and perfect payment for sin. His death satisfied divine justice. And so in Jesus Christ, our justification is complete. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we can have full assurance that his death can pay for our sin. 
The second is that Christ in his resurrection verified that he was God in the flesh and that everything he said about himself was true. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or before Abraham was, I am, or I am the bread of life, or that he is the son of man, which is a direct reference to him who sits on the throne in Daniel 7, or the son of God, or in, in John 10:17, when he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up again. Or when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he substantiated those claims from, by raising from the dead. A quick, a quick way of saying that is, if he rose from the dead, believe what he said. And third is that by his resurrection, he is the guarantee of our future bodily resurrection because he raised. He did not raise in the same way as Lazarus, who again was subject to death, but he raised with a perfect and glorified body, no longer subject to weakness or corruption. He is the first to pass from mortality to immortality. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstfruits. And all who trust in him will be raised like him. And let's not forget, Paul says this is according to the scriptures, pointing to the fact that the whole Old Testament, that God's purpose in redemptive history is fulfilled by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. In Luke 24, 44 to 46, Jesus says, These are my words that I speak to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead. The good news of Jesus Christ, of his death in our place and his resurrection to life is the center of our faith, brothers and sisters. We stand on nothing less than Jesus' death and resurrection. All the stakes rest on this particular historical saving event. It is the very reason for our future hope, as it says in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Everything rests on this. I quote Henry, Henry Morris who says, The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. This is a gospel that we can trust and place faith in because it doesn't speak of empty claims, but has great evidence. These events happened in real time and space, in real history, in real life with a real man who really died and really rose from, from the grave, and he was really seen by real people. The gospel is of substantial historical reality. And Paul continues uh, in verses 5 to 8. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Um, and as we walk through this section, um, I want to draw attention to the objections against the resurrection. Um, and as we do, please bear in mind, this is some of the best of what refuters have to offer in challenging the resurrection. So I briefly want to talk about four, four um, objections. The resurrection 
Well, the first is the resurrection wasn't a bodily resurrection. The second is the hallucination theory. The third is the, th the swoon theory. Um, and the fourth is the stolen body theory. So first, the resurrection wasn't a bodily resurrection. Some scholars have pushed the idea that the appearances mentioned here uh, from verses 5 to 8 are events of Jesus appearing spiritually um, to these people. Um, or they, can, they are just points at which the apostles made their declarations of faith and nothing more. But this idea is not, a tr is not at all true to the context of this text. Paul has already mentioned Jesus' literal death and burial and has emphasized the physical reality of the event. So it would be inconsistent that Paul would then speak of a spiritual resurrection or spiritual appearances when the whole point of this entire chapter is the bodily resurrection of believers based on the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to mention that the witness of the apostles and the gospels describe the apostles having physical encounters with the resurrected Christ and not spiritual ones. They saw him in bodily form. They were able to see and feel the nail scars in his wrists and feet. He ate bread with them. They could touch him and physically feel his body in order that they could believe. Not to mention that his body was not in the grave and was nowhere to be found. Because it was resurrected, his body was resurrected. Therefore, we can be sure that this is a literal, physical resurrection. The second is the hallucination theory, which suggests that those who reported Jesus didn't actually see him, but hallucinated based on wishful thinking. A theory like this doesn't, it almost doesn't you know, deserve to be dignified with a response, but it's a, legit, it's a legitimate theory. In these verses, Jesus has appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, most of whom are alive at the time of Paul writing the letter and were alive to question. Needless to say, it is impossible for over 500 people, let alone two or three people, to experience the, the same exact hallucination. Objectors have to believe in miracles in order to deny the miracle of the resurrection. Furthermore, Jesus appeared to people like James, his brother, who never believed in him, and Paul, who hated Christians, so they would have absolutely no reason to hallucinate because they had no wishful desire to see the risen Christ. The third is the swoon theory that suggests Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, uh, but that he was unconscious and revived while in the tomb until he was strong enough to leave the tomb. However, the weight of historical and medical evidence of his sufferings, of his crucifixion at the hands of skilled Roman soldiers trained expressly to kill and ensure death are conclusive that he died. Even if it was possible that he did not die, what sustenance or resources could he have had access to in the tomb to nurse himself back to health? Even if that was possible, how would he have recovered within three days and have moved his tombstone that needed at least two strong men to move? Even if that was possible, how could he have bypassed the Roman guards who guarded his tomb? Even if that was possible, when his disciples saw him, how could they have had, had any confidence in him as a risen savior if he's still covered in the injuries and blood from his crucifixion? How can he be a risen savior if he was crucified by the enemies, the Romans, and shows up critically injured, saying that he's the resurrection and the life? It doesn't make sense. Why would the apostles proclaim boldly that he victoriously rose from the dead if they were the ones having to nurse him back to full recovery? It doesn't make sense. Uh, the fourth is a stolen body theory. Um, others still suggest that Jesus' body was stolen either by the ruling authorities um, or by the disciples. If the ruling authorities had stolen the body, they could have finished off the Christian faith one time by producing the body of Jesus and showing outright that the apostles were lying. But they never were able to. The ruling authorities were dumbfounded by the apostles and didn't know how to deal with them except to beat them or imprison them or kill them. Even the religious authorities were anticipating that Christianity would die out 
When the apostles were arrested in Acts 5, 33 to 39, it says, when they heard this, the religious authorities, that, that is, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to the men outside um, for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care about what you do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will never be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. Jesus died and rose, and the disciples didn't disperse. And the Christian faith is now 2,000 years strong. If the disciples stole the body, how would they have gotten past the, the squad of Roman guards, is the first question. And even if they were able to, and they successfully stole the body, they would have put their lives in certain danger to spread a message that they knew to be a lie. What incentive or reward is attractive about that to a sane human being? They were already fearful for their own lives after they had seen what had happened to Jesus. When it did happen to Jesus, they ran in fear when Jesus was crucified and they were hiding when Jesus was, um, was resurrected. But they were confident of what they saw and what they knew, that Jesus is risen. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised schemes or myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle John in um, 1 John 1, 1-4, says they are witnesses. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. The disciples were confident of what they saw and knew to be true, even to the point of death. Peter was crucified upside down for his faith. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was pierced through with spears from four different soldiers. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. And just a quick note, if you think the gospel was, you know, only came through transatlantic slavery, uh, Matthew, a uh, direct apostle of the Lord Jesus, was in Ethiopia. But that's another conversation. And the list goes on and on. And even if it was possible that Jesus' body was stolen, that would in no way explain the Lord's appearance of 500 eyewitnesses, or to James, who didn't believe in Jesus, or to Paul, who was a direct enemy of the church. These men were aware of what it would cost them. Even Paul in this chapter says that if Christ didn't raise, our preaching and our faith is pointless and that we are liars and we misrepresent God and we are still in our sins. So they are very aware of the stakes. Brothers and sisters, this is pointing one way. Jesus is risen. I encourage you, this belief we hold is not of fairy tale or of myth or of lies. But our faith is based on historical reality. Amen. Granted, it is a grand claim that someone rose from the dead. But the evidence provided is beyond reasonable doubt. And refuters have to believe in unreasonable claims in order to deny the truth of the resurrection. But this is nothing less than suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Seeing the evidence and not believing it. The gospel has more than enough verifiable evidence to satisfy historical reliability. Even outside of the Bible, there are historical writings that support the claims of the gospels. <clears throat> there are the writings of Josephus, Thallus 
through Julius Africanus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius Tranquillus, Marabar Serapian, and more. Not to mention the fact that the New Testament has comprehensive manuscript evidence that far outweighs the manuscript evidence we have for Plato, Homer, Julius Caesar, Aristotle, and so much more. We can have assurance based on the level of truth of, of the level of truth of the gospel and its evidence that Christ Jesus has secured for us a future hope of resurrection. We believe, brothers and sisters, in more than an opioid for the people. But we believe in Christ and him crucified and resurrected based on the witness of the apostles, especially in the time when truth has become relative and is becoming increasingly self-determining. We have so much objective evidence. Yet God in his love assures us with this objective evidence, so we have hope. But he also gives us subjective evidence for our hope. And this leads to my second and final point. The gospel is God's transforming grace. In verses 8 to 11, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The gospel is not simply hard facts, but it is God's transforming grace in our lives. And Paul's transformation is a picture here of this. Christ appeared to him as to one untimely born, which in very literal and stark terms is literally an aborted fetus or a baby born far too prematurely that has little to no chance of survival. Paul hated Christians and vehemently persecuted the church, ravaging the church, dragging Christians into prison, and was zealous and determined to exterminate followers of Christ. But in an act of resurrecting grace, like life being given to a premature or aborted baby that has no chance of survival, Christ graciously appeared to Paul, and he now is what he is, an apostle entrusted with the gospel he once worked hard to end. In Galatians 1, to 23, as he tells this story, he says, and I was still unknown in, the person, um, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. It's crazy. His salvation is purely an act of God's life-giving and transformative grace precisely because of Christ's resurrection. And we know he understands that this is a sheer act of grace because he calls himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. But God was still faithful and by his grace made him one. And the grace of God to him wasn't in vain or of no result, but actually it caused him to work harder than all the apostles, meaning that he labored to a greater degree than them precisely because of his thankfulness for the grace he received in the light of his obvious unworthiness. God's grace then becomes operative in the lives of those he transforms, which is why he then goes on to say, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He says similarly, similarly in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God's grace in the gospel is transformative and thankfully not just for Paul, but we can now turn to ourselves. We are not first-hand eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. He has not appeared to us in the way that we see that he has appeared here. But we are witnesses of the witness of the apostles, and we are eyewitnesses of his redeeming and transforming grace in our own lives. Think for a moment about your own life before you believed in Christ, who you were, 
or even who you could have been and recognize God's deep act of grace and love to you. Like one with no chance of survival, God breathed his resurrection life into you and raised you from the dead when he caused you to believe. And he has given you the hope of resurrection for the future. He has forgiven the sins of your past and gives you grace to work in you, to transform you in the present by empowering you to live a life not only pleasing to him, but to do so with intensity. Paul, when he was Saul, was zealous against Christ, doing all he could intensely to end the church. But once the Lord in his grace appeared, he did not respond casually or indifferently, but the intensity he had against Christ was subverted to intensity for Christ, causing him to work harder than the apostles who were with Jesus for three years under his, under his teaching. And that is a direct response to grace. May we emulate that. We used to live for the world and its pleasures, pursuing that which was against God, living intensely and solely for our own desires. But once Christ in his grace appeared in us, who were unworthy to know him, we should respond by believing, not for believing's sake, but with intensity and thorough conviction that Jesus is risen and that he is Lord over your life. Paul says that the grace of God in saving him was not in vain. But going back to verses 1 and 2, I remind you of this gospel we have received, in which we stand, by which we are graciously being saved, if we hold fast to it intensely. We must cling to it, hold tight to it with confidence, standing firm on it, unless we have believed in vain. And so as a church, what does holding fast to the gospel look like? I think it has something to do with unwaveringly and confidently uniting around the gospel. We don't meet for any reason more important than the gospel. As a church, as a people, it must be our very core. It must be the truth that causes us to unite. Not the wisdom of this age that teaches you to define truth for yourself. Not secondary issues or controversial issues like racism or feminism or relationships. These issues are incredibly important and must be addressed. Amen. Amen. But they must bow the knee to the gospel because it is from the gospel that we should seek to understand these issues. Otherwise, we will morph into discussion forums using the world's wisdom. The gospel is to be the heart of Ecclesia, pumping lifeblood into and through all different areas that we are concerned with and involved in as a church. We want to be a church that's able to cultivate community. But focusing on community itself misses the secret of what any community really is. Community should be or is to be uniting around the thing that is most important to us. And we will never have a true sense of community or the true sense of a community that we long for, if it is not based on the gospel. Community for the sake of community is useless. Us meeting every Sunday for the sake of meeting is useless. But community based on and for the gospel will be everything because it draws us together through what we are most committed to, which enables us to then be committed to each other. And if we are to grow up, we must be a people who collectively know the gospel and grow in, un in our understanding of it. We must look at the world and its wisdom um, on the issues with a gospel-centered lens. We must recognize that it is the basis of the hope we have for the future. And we are to hold fast to it and not shift away from it. In our individual lives, the truth of Christ should take precedence over all areas of life, not just on a Sunday. If you are a Sunday Christian, you're doing Christianity wrong. We cannot place other things above the gospel like comfort, convenience, work, investments, or even families, marriages, and, church, and, and children. 
If the gospel is of first importance to us, if the gospel is of first importance to us, which it should be for all of us, its power is able to permeate in and give life to all of those areas. It doesn't work the other way around. And if you're struggling with your belief in God, or you're listening to this and you don't believe in Jesus, I urge you to seek the truth and you will find that Christ indeed died for your sins, was buried and raised on the third day. And outside of this, humanity has no hope, no future, none, zero, zilch. Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And there is great evidence that proves beyond reasonable doubt that he rose again. And I, we all are personally, are personally a witness of God's grace. I personally, though my eyes have not seen him, my mind and my heart has beheld him in the reliability of the scriptures, the truth of his word, his revelation in creation, the summons of my conscience, the depth of his love and his reach of his immeasurable grace in the forgiveness of my sins through the shedding of his blood and his raising from the dead, the removal of my condemnation, the sanctification of my soul through the power of his Holy Spirit and the hope of resurrection glory only, only accessible through the person and work of Christ Jesus. We are all witnesses. And I pray that you have a blessed week and that you hold fast to the gospel. Bless you. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.